0: You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview podcast.
1: Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast, bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. In a somewhat quirky cultural look back at 2016, our podcast this week consists in reflections from our correspondents on books and arts events that particularly inspired them this year. From London... Our London editor Dennis Staunton's take on King Lear. Our Paris correspondent Lara Marlow on a moving French battlefield production of Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching to the Somme. And from Berlin, Derek Scally is immersing himself in an inspiring self-help book. When we are born, King Lear tells us, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. Shakespeare always has uncanny resonances for our time and our contemporary great stage of fools. Dennis Staunton, you saw what was by all accounts a marvellous production of King Lear in London uh, this year uh, and one that spoke very eloquently to the great issues of our time.
2: Yes, Glenda Jackson has returned to the stage at the age of 80. She uh, hadn't been on stage for 25 years because, as you know, after uh, a stellar career, she won two uh, Academy Awards for Best Actress. She then uh, left acting to become a Labour MP uh, in, uh, in the 90s and uh, just stepped down at the last election. So, to, for her comeback, she uh, took on the role of King Lear. At what age? At the age of 80. And which was of course the age that King Lear was and it's, it's, it's quite rare that you see an actor uh, of that age uh, performing the last time I saw somebody of that age performing it was actually also a woman and it was uh, Marianna Hopper uh, in a production by Robert Wilson in Frankfurt and that happened in uh, 1990 just between the fall of the Berlin Wall and German Unification so it was also uh, happening at a moment of transition and rather in the same way uh, Marianna Hopper was a figure of fascination, because uh, she herself had an interesting backstory. She uh, had been a, a big star in the Nazi era, and she was married to the actor Gustav, Gustav Grüngens, and he was the basis for uh, Mephisto, the uh, Heinrich Mann novel. Uh, so, so she just actually watching her and knowing her history, uh, and you know, somebody of that age was, it was interesting in itself. But at that time in the 90s, the idea of a woman playing one of the great male Shakespeare and roles was still uh, quite an innovation. We've seen an awful lot more of that uh, in the last few years. It's something which has actually come back. It sort of disappeared in the 20th century, although there was an awful lot of it in the 19th century, particularly women playing Hamlet. But anyway, uh, Glenda Jackson came back as King Lear, and uh, and from the moment she came on stage, uh, you, immediately, uh, you, you never thought about gender at all. And one of the things she says about this is that actually gender differences tend to be uh, blurred uh, when you're very young, when you're a baby, and also when you get very old, that, uh, that somehow gender isn't quite as important at that stage.
1: And the character himself doesn't require to be... Male or female? Does he? Is it very specific? Well, he's a king,
2: and uh, and so it, it, it you know, uh, and uh, has uh, has daughters, uh, obviously, and uh, and you know, and and in this production, the daughters, uh, Regan and Goneril, the two uh, sort of bad daughters, uh, traditionally, they're played quite sympathetically in that uh, Celia Imory plays Goneril and Jane Horrocks, uh, who's well known from Absolutely Fabulous, she plays Regan. And and uh, and they uh, and you really see, here are these people who are trying to get on with their lives, and this uh, you know impossible older parent comes up with this great idea, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm going to come and live with you for one month, and then I'll come and live with you for the other month, and I'm going to bring my hundred knights with me. And, uh, and so there's a certain amount of sympathy uh, for them initially, but of course that that fades. But one of the reasons I think that this was uh, resonant for the time we live in, the time of Brexit, the time of Donald, of Donald Trump, is that uh, it's a play about an old order being replaced by a new, uh, harsher one. And uh, and partly through its own foolishness, so it's it's Lear's own foolishness, uh, obviously by uh, by favouring the daughters uh, who are being perhaps uh, dishonest with him and who won't flatter him over, uh, or who will flatter him over the daughter Cordelia, who actually tells him the truth, and who uh, and who refuses to flatter. So he brings about his own destruction. But at the same time, you see this order passing into a new uh, and unknown and rather brutal reality. And the other element of it which uh, seems particularly apposite now in uh, what has been described as a post-truth uh, era is the fact that the two most sympathetic characters The Fool, uh, who's his uh, kind of jester and Cordelia they both uh, are essentially truth-tellers and they're people who uh, in the face of you know, extraordinary obstacles tell the truth and pay a huge price for it. Who put on the play? It was at the Old Vic. It was directed by Deborah Warner, and uh, and just across the river from the Old Vic, uh, Anthony Scherr has been playing King Lear as well. And there have been at least six uh, productions of King Lear in uh, in Britain this year, uh, which uh, which is unusual. And again, there's one of these things which is it's a strange thing that the theatre has often, and you find it, and again you found it in uh, in Germany uh, around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, that somehow a kind of a collective imagination seems uh, among theatre makers to fixate usually on classic plays and in a way uh, that seems to speak to the to the time and so for example uh, before uh, the fall of the wall There was a major production of Hamlet in East Berlin with uh, Heiner Müller's Hamlet Machine, which is a kind of a cut-up, sort of postmodernist element of Hamlet, and this again uh, was, uh, you know, it was a play that seemed to speak to a kind of an essential. German difficulty about uh, the the difficulty that Hamlet has in in deciding where he should be and what he should be doing and and again it appeared to speak to uh, to a particular moment in German history despite it not reacting to anything but just actually because all of these productions of King Lear that we're talking about they were planned before Brexit before Donald Trump and yet once these events happened they seemed somehow to have some resonance for people and it was uh, it was one of it was, it was quite striking that every night since this play opened Glenda Jackson has received enormous standing ovations and uh, as you know from the London Theatre Standing ovations are a very rare thing in the London theatre. They just don't happen that often. But it's a performance of, uh, of such extraordinary power. And also just there's the physical thing. And, you know, it's a reminder in a way, too, that the reason that we go to the theatre is mostly to see actors, to see them doing the physical thing. And when somebody is that age... Uh, and the, you know the, this production it lasts. I mean, they've cut a certain amount, but it still lasts three and a half hours. And uh, so it's a remarkable physical thing to do. And she's doing eight shows a week at and the age re- of eighty, and to remember the lines, and to remember the lines. She did. Uh, she knew the lines uh, before she went into the first day of rehearsal. And, uh, and so she had uh, she was obviously concerned that she might not have but, uh, but it's uh, it, it, it is so, so I think it, it's a remarkably ambitious thing for her to do uh, and, uh, and, and what she and again she, you, when you saw her because she wore some of the clothes that she used to wear in Parliament. there was one uh, famous speech she made after uh, Margaret Thatcher died and when uh, Parliament various members of parliament were getting up to um, to make all kinds of eulogies uh, to make Margaret Thatcher, Glenda Jackson stood up wearing this long red cardigan over a black sort of uh, uh, trouser suit and uh, she uh, delivered this philippic against Margaret Thatcher and all of the destruction that Margaret Thatcher had wrought and she again, as Lear, is wearing this red uh, garment or something very similar.
1: And does it it say anything about the Labour Party which she has emerged from?
2: There is nothing in it about the Labour Party, although there is a line which gets uh, a a, a big laugh, which is uh, a line poking fun at politicians and, uh, and insulting them. So that always does get a big Jesters laugh.
1: Gestures do oft prove profits. Thank you very much, Dennis. Hi, my name's Hugh Linehan, and I just wanted to take a few seconds to tell you about the Inside Politics podcast from The Irish Times. Every week I'm joined by our own expert analysts along with elected politicians and people who just have interesting political ideas. If you're interested in how the system works, how it could be made better, and what effects politics really has on your life, join me every Wednesday for Inside Politics. You can find it on irishtimes.com podcasts or on your preferred podcast app. All over Europe this year, there have been commemorations of the biggest battle in human history, the Somme in Belgium, uh, part of that was a special cultural commemoration that Lara Marlowe attended. What was it?
3: It was a production of Frank McGuinness's play, Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme, and it was uh, performed at the Ulster Tower uh, near Thiepval, actually in France, uh, on almost 100 years to the day of, of when the actual... Uh, assault by um, the 36th Ulster division took place, and what was really amazing it was it was almost in real time because the um, the Ulster division went over the top as as they said during the first world war at dawn and it was staged quite late at night, I think it ended after ten or eleven at night and and in the the very last scene of a play. Uh, the soldiers, all the Ulster Orangemen, are preparing to go over the top, and and they had candles, and they were some of them were still sleeping, and it was it was as if we were caught in a time warp. It was really amazing. And then um, one of the characters, the, the one who was the, the sort of leader, he's called the, the character is called Kenneth Piper, and he's a fictional some veteran. And at the very end, he he he's encouraging his men, he's getting them ready, helping, trying to get their courage up to 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 attack the German lines, and which were actually just across. The veil from where we were, and and they actually were in the trees where we were, and he he shouts uh, to the Lord, observe the sons of Ulster marching towards the sun, and you could hear it echoing from all the hills of Picardy all around us, and, we, and then all of, all eight of the characters in the play uh, shout Ulster, 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 and that's the end of the play. And there were about thirty of us there to see it. It was very cold. It was very wet. Um, especially for the the end of June, uh, and who knows, perhaps it was like that 100 years ago, I don't know, but um, at, the, at the end of it, there was just this stunned silence, and I looked around and, and people had tears streaming down their faces. It was really probably one of the most moving theatrical performances I've ever seen in my life.
1: And, and who actually put it on? Was, was Frank McGuinness there?
3: He was there. In fact, I interviewed him on the spot, and he said that when he wrote the play 30 years ago, he never could have dreamed that it would be performed at the Ulster Tower. Uh, it was a joint production, an Anglo-Irish production. Uh, there was a director from London called Jeremy Heron, who, who was part Irish, he told me, and the Abbey Theatre was somehow involved. Fiek Macanil, who was still the, the head of the Abbey Theatre, was was there. And um, Fiek said that it, the Abbey is still putting on plays by northern writers because um, people believe that the Good Friday Agreement somehow solved everything in the north, but, but it hasn't. And he wants to keep this present in people's minds. He said that integration between the communities in the north is happening extremely slowly. And, and that this play, um, Observe the Sons of Ulster, has done a great deal to make people in the Republic understand the mentality of the orange men. And uh, Frank McGuinness told me actually the thing that inspired him to write the play in the first place was that he, he learned that um, orange men fighting in the First World War before, before they would go into battle would exchange their sashes, And that detail, which, which one does see in the play, was one of the things that, that inspired him.
1: Yes it's it's a very complex play about identity and loyalty and the contradictions of of Ulsterness and 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 so you're saying it it has real resonances still today.
3: Oh, very much so. Very much so. And there is a a homosexual love affair between two of the main characters, a a young man from what what the play calls a swanky family. Uh, And he's he's a sculptor, and he's well-educated, and he's extremely cynical. And he falls in love with a blacksmith from Enniskillen. And their love story is actually very convincing. Um, Vic McAnil told me that originally this before... Uh, same-sex marriage was legal in Ireland before this whole evolution in, in Irish um, mores uh, that this had caused some problems for the play over the last 30 years but certainly now it, it seemed very very much of our times Thank
1: you very much Lara And now to Berlin and our correspondent Derek Scully who's been rather coy about his cultural choice of the year what is it,
0: Derek? Well, my choice has been coloured by the year we've had behind us. Uh, the world seen seemingly spinning off its axis, as Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel put it, and um, any correspondent who's working in an environment like this has the dilemma how to unplug. We're all kind of attention deficit addicts at this stage, and uh, I realised this year I had two problems. I was charging the mobile phone by my bed, and I was checking Twitter night, noon, and morning, and as soon as Donald Trump became president, I decided, yeah, actually, I'm going to delete uh, the Twitter app from my phone and I'm going to check Twitter if I need on my web browser, preferably on my laptop, and I'm going to get back into reading books. Um, and the book I have been reading uh, is uh, an old book. It was published in 1963, originally in Swedish, and it's called Markings by Dag Hammarskjöld. And Dag Hammarskjöld, for the older listeners you might remember, was one of the first uh, Secretary Generals of the United Nations. He was born in 1905, and his father was Sweden's Prime Minister during the First World War. And Markings, uh, he described as a sort of a white book concerning my negotiations with myself and with God. Now, in these days, you call it sort of a self-help book, uh, but the self-help genre has has, has lost any sort of seriousness. But this book was sort of a self-help book before there was one. Um, Dag Hammarskjöld was uh, flying around the world, solving all of the many crises in the 1950s. He was uh, he was Secretary General of the UN from 53, and he was re-elected in 57. And he died in 1961 in an air crash over northern Rhodesia as part of uh, attempts to negotiate a ceasefire with um, forces there. I should say yeah. that
1: there is still controversy about that crash because there are suggestions that that it was brought down uh, deliberately,
0: yes, uh, that's exactly it. And he seems to have had some premonitions of this that he wasn't going to live to a ripe old age. Um, but he he spent his life uh, a very prominent, a very public figure, and yet, of course, like all public figures, he eventually had to go into his room and wash his teeth and sit down and try and come down after maybe an 18 hour workday. And this book, uh, Markings, um, is uh, his attempt to... It's not a diary in the traditional sense. It's just thoughts. He might have only had time or energy for five sentences, but he's put them down. And the book starts in 1925. And it ends in 1961, just before his death. And this is the closest we have to a biography. Um, and it basically tackles two issues: um, his his belief that serving your country is one of the highest um, achievements you can have, but also um, uh, having faith and having trust in God is is the best the best thing you can do for your soul in a world gone mad. And I think that. Uh, is something we need a little bit more of uh, as we all try to unplug at least for a couple of hours around Christmas this year. Is it a book that you'd recommend to Angela Merkel? It's a book I'd recommend to anybody, but particularly Angela Merkel. And it's actually Angela Merkel I've been um, thinking of. I have a a German edition I bought a few days ago, and I'm probably going to pass it on to her spokesman, who's equally frazzled, Uh, and I might suggest that when he's done with it, he passes it on to uh the woman herself and um, the extraordinary thing about the english edition uh, is it's been um translated and has a foreword by wh auden the poet who knew hammer school during his life and uh, he's written a very interesting introduction to this and uh sp- pointed out some of the some of the interesting artistic elements of it he had he was never married he had no long term relationships and he was sort of i suppose you'd call it today married to his job Um, But uh, the relationship with God was something that occupied and preoccupied him. And this is extremely unfashionable these days. But I think anyone who is running around uh, needs to have some sort of quiet moment or quiet center in their life. And um, this seems to have been God seems to have been for him that. I have a couple of uh, extracts here I picked out, which which really, I think, give a flavor of the man. In 1941, he wrote. Um, praise nauseates you, but woe betide him who does not recognize your worth. And uh, 1950, he wrote, time goes by, reputation increases, ability declines. Um, he, he also seems to have been a, a master of the, of the haiku, um, the much maligned Japanese poetry form. In um, 1959, he wrote the lines, congenial to other people. It is with yourself that you must live, and um, I think that's uh, something in, in this in this public age where everyone's public image is more important, more and more important. I think uh, I think that's more important. He said once to W. H. Auden, he said, "To be Secretary General of the UN is like being a secular pope, and the papal throne is a lonely eminence." And uh, I think Angela Merkel could probably uh, relate to that. She's been called everything, including. Uh, uh, the woman who has the dead of the Christmas market in Berlin on her hands and uh, to the leader of the last standing leader of the free world. So she's probably feeling very lonely at this Christmas. Um, but I think for anyone who's just feeling uh, they need time out, uh, Markings by Dag Pammeskud is quite a remarkable piece of work. It's, it's one of those books for people who read the best books of the year list knowing that they'll never get around to reading those books because they never got around to reading last year's book of book of the year books and uh, I'm one of those people and this is one of these books you dip into and it might just be two sentences you might only have time for two sentences before you drift off but it's, uh, it's quite a remarkable book recommended to me by a priest interestingly um, and uh, it's definitely been one I've been revisiting over and over again as I kind of quietly hoped that uh, this year was all a bad dream.
1: Thank you very much, Derek. Thanks to Dennis Staunton, Lara Marlow and Derek Scully, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan, and our producer Declan Conlon. I'm Patrick Smith, wishing all our listeners a very happy new year. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.